Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. You guys just, you guys are feeling great, probably. Okay, so this morning uh, we are talking about Lent, and um, and this is going to be fun. So we we now that we got all that, you know, sad stuff out of the way, um, we'll uh, we're going to be talking about Lent, and um, we're going to try. I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as I can. I'm going to read a lot, um, a little more than usual, only so I can um, because as as I wrote this, in fact, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you've realized we've not been. very, very common for the early church, and this began to practice around the third or fourth century, 
that they would use the Gospel of John to read and test for the whole Gospel of John. Um, and so I've never done that before, ever, 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 um, to stay in a specific book of the Bible um, for a period of time. But for the rest of my life, we're in John. And um, um, uh, uh, quickly, let me just recap. So John, in its original form, and we talked about this last Sunday, but just to back up. So in its original form, again, it was something called the rite of election. It comes from this beautiful thought that from the first moment of creation, God elected and christened all of creation. They would actually say that from the foundation of the world, God has anointed everything. Anointed everything. Think about what that might mean. Because we think of anointing when we say, well, I'm feeling the anointing. He anointed the dirt. He anointed the rocks, rivers, stars and clouds. He anointed everything. Even this beautiful fact has been impacted, though, by our shame and guilt-ridden culture. We look through Calvinistic lenses that give us the doctrine of total depravity and see this time as a somber time of self-ridicule and discipline. How many people have heard it meant like that? It's a sad time. You, you beat yourself up about how bad you feel. You, um, you know, degrade yourself in any mistakes you might have. It's a time of somber repentance. And I've still got my, my pastor's gear uh, with me. Um, and so then on Ash Wednesday, which is the first day of the Sabbath, the Feast of Lent, um, you come in and they mark your head with a, an ashen cross. And uh, we see that, and even that, we, I don't know about you, but when I used to see that, first of all, it was weird. Was it weird for you? It was weird for me. Uh, the other day, Bill and I were talking about um, seeing, we, we didn't, don't see it as much. Uh, so on Ash Wednesday, I thought it was really cool. There was like four or five really prominent news anchors that, that hosted the nightly news with the ashes still on their foreheads. Isn't that cool? Hey, that's great. Um, and so um, what we did, though, was even that, we would say, you know, ashes to ashes and dust to dust and ashes to the tomb and ashes to the sun. Then that just sounds sad. It didn't make, that didn't sound great at all. Like, it, it sounds this dark and somber kind of thing. But interestingly enough, that's because of our lens. We read it back into the way Ash Wednesday is supposed to work. Ash Wednesday became a time to mark someone who was shame, who was in shameful reflection. That's what we knew. Ash Wednesday marked somebody who was in shameful reflection of their fallen state and repentance for their own humanity. Doesn't that just sound lovely? So actually, what you find is the reason that they marked us with ash in the beginning is because ash is one of the most fertile nutrients for growth that we have on the planet. Has anybody ever had flowers or a garden and you said ash has been put on it? Why? Because it's a fertilizer. So the original reason it put ash on you was not because you were in somber um, mourning, but it was because it spoke of the fact that there was this beautiful thing to be touched by ash and a prayer for the grace and nutrients to grow even more deeply into the image of the one in whom we've already been made and called. That's what Ash Wednesday is. It's not somber. It's not mourning. It's not sadness. It is reflection. And they put that on you to say, this is speaking of the grace and the most nutrient-rich thing we can think of that is upon us to make us into what we were supposed to be. The biggest thing that stands in the gap or blocks as a barricade who you, uh, who you are and who you think you're supposed to be is what you've been told you are and you believe in. It's that simple. And when you've been told that you're a dirty, rotten sinner and that it's your job that the flesh is in enmity with the spirit and all that other malarkey, that, you, that your mind is bad, that your body is bad, and that all you have to do is become more spiritual, it's no wonder then that we just think, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just dirt. Actually, what they said was you were snow-covered dung. 
challenge us that you are, because of Jesus. Now, oh, by the way, that's after you get saved. If you said the magic prayer, now you're not dung anymore. You're snow covered dung. You're still dung. Thank God it snowed. Isn't that wonderful? So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, how this fast works. Um, because it was a time to focus on the fact that we were made in love and we focus on the love that is the foundation of our being. As we do this, we wrestle with the places in us that reject to surrender to love. Let me say that again. The point of this fast is us dealing and wrestling with the places in us that reject the surrender to love. And that's why, do you realize that we come, our mother Israel, the Jewish faith is what birthed the Christian faith. Do you realize that's why the name Israel means to wrestle with God? That's what it means. What did Jacob do when his name was changed to Israel? Wrestled all night with God and walked away with a limp. Why? Because the journey of faith is wrestling with God. And if you're not wrestling with God, you're probably not moving on the journey. It's just that simple. Wrestling with God means fear. Wrestling with God means doubt. Wrestling with God means letting go. So what we actually do is we wrestle with the places in us that reject to surrender to love. During this fast, we embrace the fact that we have been elected to exchange in love with the entire universe or the cosmos. This ancient call of Greece was a call of love realigning to love. That's what Greece is all about. And it's an awareness that the entire universe is formed, framed, and founded in love. The entire universe. So it's a reconnection to the love that is being put into everything. All of creation. Everything is perfectly in love. So then you find this in Scripture. And what I love about this is once you see it in Scripture, you can't unsee it. Have you ever had that? You've heard that phrase before. Once you see something, you can't unsee it. Now, typically what that means is, um, is that you saw somebody's dance moves after one too many margaritas, um, like a lane on Seinfeld. That's not at all uh, what, what I mean by you can't unsee something. What, uh, what I'm t- actually, last night, uh, Costa and I were playing. We played downtown, and there was a shooting uh, across the street, um, which was interesting. Um, but all, uh, So I asked the cops afterwards, and it, it, we were playing Cops Bay last night. Um, but I asked the policeman we were leaving, I said, was everybody okay? He said, yes, there was, and I'm quoting him. I'm quoting him. He said, um, there was, uh, it was just a midget firing his gun into the air because there was a, a midget argument. Quote, midget argument. And, and, and he said, it wasn't a very big problem. Now, come on. Come on. <laughs> you know, that's a Doug joke right there. That's got Doug written all over it. It's a small gun, too. That's right. Yeah. So, well, there we go, you know. So, but it, so it's like that, you know, once you, and I got to watch it because it happened right behind us outside the window. So I got to watch him, you know, pick the, uh, like catch the, <laughs> it was interesting. Uh, it was just a unique scenario. But, and that was one of those things that once you've seen, you can't unsee. Like, I can't unsee that, you know. But uh, you find that with the things of the scripture, too. Like, as an example, I would venture to say that as a church now, when you look at the scriptures and you see the word, word, that's changed for you, hasn't it? So now when you read uh, the, the washing of the water by the word, that doesn't mean the Bible to you anymore, does it? Why? Because you can't unsee what you've seen. You've seen something and it's changed you. So you find this throughout scripture, that there is this pre, uh, predestination. Anybody ever heard of predestination? Okay, there is a predestination. It's just not what we were taught. So there is a pre-election. It's just not what we were taught. We were taught that pre-election and predestination meant some people are going to automatically get saved. Some people are going to go to hell. Isn't that wonderful? Calvinism, folks, we were all raised in it, that some people are predestined. When they're born, God's already decided who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. 
isn't that lovely? And this loving God keeps allowing people who are predestined automatically for hell to keep being born. That's really loving. So there is a predestination. We've just missed what it is. So you find this in Paul's opening letter to the Ephesian church. He opens with a hymn. He opens with the Ephesian church with a hymn that is so big and so shocking, we actually had to make it smaller to be able to process it. So the opening in Ephesians is this. Every spiritual blessing, I have to read this, yeah. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us, has already been lavished upon us, has already been lavished upon us, has already been lavished upon us. Remember that. As a gift of love or a love gift from our wonderful heavenly father, the father of the Lord Jesus, all because he sees us wrapped into Christ. The problem of we see us and we think us. Let's read and see what Paul says it is. This is why we celebrate him with all our hearts and why he chooses us to be his very own, joining us to himself before the foundation of the universe. That's Genesis language. So what he's saying is everything and everyone who's ever lived, breathed, moved, or been here has already been wrapped into Christ. Because of his love. So you know how we say that because we walk in the deeper things of God, he showered us with heavenly blessings and spiritual blessings on high. Guess what? He showered everything with spiritual blessings on high. You aren't special. The only thing that separates us is if you're aware of it or not. That's it. The only thing that separates anyone is awareness. You don't get saved, you get aware. So, he chose us to be his very own, joining us to himself even before the foundation of the universe. Who? Everyone. Everything joined to him since the foundation of the universe because of his great love. Why did he do it? Go. And he ordained us so that we would be seen holy in his eyes. Wait a minute. So you're already what? When did he already make you holy? Since before the foundation of the universe. When did he wrap you in Christ? Since before the foundation of the universe. What is wrapped in Christ? Everything. Why is it wrapped in Christ? Because of his love. We would have said we're wrapped in Christ because we prayed the prayer and we're faithful to say it. He says you're wrapped in Christ because I love you. For it was always in his perfect plan to adopt us to be his delightful children through our union with Jesus, the anointed one, so that his tremendous love would cascade over us, which glorifies his grace. Once again, who's glorified by this? He is. It's the way he demonstrates the excess of his love. If his love wasn't recklessly distributed to all, then it wouldn't be his love. It would be ours. So that his tremendous love cascades over us, he would be glor- uh, would glorify his grace. For the same love he has for his beloved one, Jesus, he has for us. And every time Paul says us, that actually in every single translation, every single definition is everything. The same love that he has for Christ in that Christ is one with the Father, he has for everything because everything is one with the Father. Everything has always been one with the Father. Everything will always be one with the Father. And this unfolding plan brings him what? Pleasure. We serve a God that feels pleasure. Do you realize how crazy that is? That is actually one of the opposites. And I was trying to study some of the, the, the larger religions of the world. The only thing, oh, can I pass? One of the only things that separates the, the attributes or characteristics of Yahweh or of, of Jehovah, depending on how, what you're looking at, from the other gods that are worshipped is pleasure. Interestingly enough, 
This is absolutely incredible. Literally, before the world was made, everything was chosen by God. Before the world was made, everything was chosen. God selects what he's chosen. So what happens is, in our framework, when we get this wrong, we go around defining things as holy. Some people are saved. Some people are not saved. Some people are Christians. Some people are not Christians. Some things are, are loved by God. Some things are not. Some things are black. Some things are white. Some things are evil. Some things are not. So we need to take the task of assigning divine love and holiness or election to creation that was entirely called elect by the designer and the one who started it in the first place. We go around anointing Christians things as Christian or not, loving or not, godly or not, when the divine designer already called the whole thing this. And frankly, anything else is egocentric and abuse that we would take it upon us, because he knows within the means of humans that we don't possess the capacity to distinguish holy or unholy. We just do not. We don't. We do not possess in being the capacity to to define and distinguish holy or unholy, Christian or non-Christian. So you know what he did? He already did it. The divine designer said it's all is the substance, the engine of it all. So, before the foundation, everything was chosen by God. It was wrapped in Christ at the foundation of the world, making all things Christ. You want to know what the body of Christ is? Everything. Everything. But just think about this. Okay, it's going to get really hot. <laughs> so bear with me. Okay. So, what we find is about this idea of the body of Christ is so that Jesus was flesh, or was God in the flesh, right? He was flesh and skin, incarnation. That's why the incarnation has already happened, because God in the flesh is the body of Christ, which is everything. In the same way that Jesus was God in the flesh, in human form, and we say that that's Christ in bodily form, so do you think it's really interesting? You think about what Christ did for the church and it blows your mind. That's kind of exclusive, isn't it? Guess what? The body of Christ is everything that has ever taken form. That's what Paul's saying. So, even the term adoption, which we see as sons, um, so we see this phrase all over in 1 Timothy, adopt us. That term gets kind of dismissed. And the reason that term gets kind of dismissed is because in our culture, and now I'm kind of coming from the broad aspect, but in our culture, we think it means someone who is an outsider who was kind of graciously brought into the family. Right? Adoption, right? Somebody who was an outsider to the family that you were brought into. That's really interesting because where it automatically presumes, do we think that the way that this supposed to work, that God adopted us, is that it's supposed to work by presuming that someone is at one time considered by God an outsider or born outside of the family. So we say we are adopted in, but, but we base that on the first instance that we're outside. Have we ever been separate from God? Have we ever been separate from God? Can we ever be separate from God? So how could you have been an outsider to be brought into the house? So there's more to this. The word adoption only used by Paul most scholars believe is a word made up. It's not found in any culture anywhere else. So it's only in the Old Testament, used only by Paul, and they believe more than likely he made it up. It was a word that was put together by Greek cultural and Roman cultural terminology so they could understand that they would have understood it as a legal form. You know how we have words that get passed around in language and culture like how you can say you mean better or like you would say, you know, hey, do you have Wi-Fi? That's really not a word, right? 
really have to oppress. We know exactly who they're preaching. Um, so in the same way, Paul put this word together, which makes it very difficult to find doors and ways to speak. But what is clear from the etymology of this word is to adopt his culture or tongue. Let me read to you what a scholar wrote about this last section of Philippians. The reason Paul chose this, this word, adoption, is that the Romans recognized when a baby was born, you got what you got. If you were born into a family, you got what you got, whether you liked it or not. Meaning that the primary point of birth was the right to inherit. If you were born with little, that's all that you could ever have. Paul is saying it doesn't matter what you were born with with your eyes. Everything has already been given to you, and it overrides the natural law of what you know is earthly to be accepted. That's not even reached by Paul. Secondly, according to Roman law, a natural born baby could be disowned from the family. However, when you've adopted a child, knowing exactly what you were getting, you were not allowed to adopt the child unless you signed a contract that that child could never be removed from your family. Paul recognizes that he's using adoption terms because if it's a child that's born to you, you can disown it. We can never be disowned. So he uses adoption terminology because he's trying to define his culture that once you've adopted the child, there isn't the possibility of ever leaving the family. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's no possibility of ever being outside of the family of God. So he didn't choose the fact that you were born of God. He chose the fact that you're adopted by God because in that culture, they would have thought if you were born of God, you could be kicked out. Paul's saying you can never be kicked out because you've never been separate. That's adoption. So we don't have to get saved and become a son and become a saint and become a Christian and become a this and become a that and become a Pentecostal and become a charismatic. Have I been dropping balls on people? So then the adoption, in fact, the spirit of adoption is already done. We don't need to ask to be adopted. We don't need to earn the adoption. We don't need to work to stay adopted. Because what's adopted can't be removed. That's the idea. So we were all Christians from the beginning of time. This is Luke himself. The purpose of this third religion is to teach you and leave you in Luke 9, 1 through 7. If religion does not do this, it just flat out don't believe. If your religion doesn't teach you more about who God said you were in the beginning, it don't believe. The goal of religion is to learn more about him so that we can learn more about what he said we were so that we'll be more able to live by his standards. So, this brings us to John 5, and we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 27, and then get to John 5 as well, and we'll dive into all that as well. So, the thing that you uh, you find with John's gospel is John's gospel was written at a very different time, and it's coming out of this particular epic John's gospel was written from the Christian epic. So also, because this artwork that you're seeing depicts the Feast of Pentecost, it makes you think that quickly Ephesians was written before John. Actually, the first book of the New Testament is written before Ephesians. I mean, the gospel came far, far before that. In fact, do you realize that Paul had started the church in Ephesus 15 years before John wrote the gospel. So John was writing the gospel to the people who had just heard of what we just read, that we're all predestined, that we're all elect, that we've all been found and formed in Christ since the beginning. So now you understand why John's gospel sounds and feels different. Is anybody in here not finding the book of John to be the most compelling? I mean, like, I could do a sermon on the book of First John. I could do it. My brother says I should preach about First John on Sunday for two years because it's that good. It is, to me, the, the most incredible literary literary work ever written. And so when you see here this idea of the Gospel of John, it is not that you would think that Paul would have already written the word because he wrote to the Jews. In fact, late in the first century, Ephesus was surrounded by the cities. 
including Tina and Philip Diversity, all from Arkansas, who have been able to accomplish these milestones alone, and respectively, that are going to make continue their efforts to empowering and potentially changing society to be unheard of in the first century A.D. By the time of John's gospel written in the mid-90s,
the Lord you serve and what did you decide to serve and we decided that that was a really good idea that we need to be responsible uh, teachers so they don't have to come out and you know every day at our school or leading worship because that would be wild they don't have to decide who's doing the women in music that are with me but it'd be cool to preach and what Paul was actually doing was he was dealing with a system where they set precedence about worship and so he was saying he was trying to lead them towards circumcision where there was no male Jews or Greek slaves or free but he was trying to say but in the context of this translation every shout from the church to your headphones didn't have a preference because that's what was happening so he identifies Paul's language and goes forward so Paul was the first one to come out and say don't set precedence that's huge for them earth shattering Christians have been epic stakes this further than anybody else anywhere in history on the planet Ephesus stakes a season further than anyone else has stakes it and Paul led the way with that they said everybody is one the Christian tradition that we say is Judaic is deeply based in equality inclusion progressivism and really funny words evolution the Christian tradition is based deeply in that we actually have a 700 year tradition of communion and community as equal status for all humanity for 700 years it has been the Christian way we have led the way in communion and community for all human beings the challenge is it is said in Christianity has regressed from the beauty of what we hold we led the way at one point in equality but the challenge is in some ways how we've regressed from it bring uh, the, the idea of what happens is these practices are deeply based in our tradition there is an instance of, of especially in, in America of these things being kind of not Jewish tradition I don't want the old tradition I just want to be led by the spirit and I don't want to be bound by any tradition interestingly enough the Christian tradition you know what the Christian tradition is taking it like pegs deconstruction is the tradition evolution is the tradition so actually we say no 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 I want tradition I don't want to do what the old way I want to do it the new way because I don't like the tradition no 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 doing it the new way is the tradition that's the way it was designed no John's gospel has the rich framework uh, of you being the ones sitting at the table together in perfect unity with one another and Christ as the animating energy John then invites us to bring our tradition to the table bringing our variety and our questions to that table John invites us to a table that is so inclusive that he welcomes your variety and your questions so what happens is is we come with this great diversity to the table and it actually is a is a diversity that says let you come to the table and bring your fear and your doubt and your passion and your trust and your love and bring it all to the table make sure you have it with you everything belongs to the table and so what happens then is John shows us that if we bring all of that to the table in our authenticity dealing with the voices inside of us that limit and uh, limit our ability to expand John teaches us that the seats at the table are not sacred to those who are in they're sacred in us that have answers they're sacred in us that have no bad days they're sacred in us that have no doubt they're sacred in us that have no pain but all of that belongs at the table with you every part of what you bring has a role to play in where you're going I'm going to say that again every diverse part of who you are plays a part in where you're going so when you try to excommunicate the part of you that you're ashamed of you're actually preventing you from being able to go holistically to where you're going when you shun your doubt to try to be faithful you leave 
behind as part of this effort was to be able to go forward holistically in the faith. Makes sense? But I was caught up in the lawsuit aspect of it. Then, when all that started crumbling on me, I started clasping thoughts of that. You know, that was not the right thing to do. So what begins to happen is that all of that belongs on the table with us. And we will not be able to embrace the inclusive diversity that we want until we begin to embrace the inclusive diversity inside of you. Until you embrace your fears and your pains and your doubt and your anxiety, you won't be able to embrace those that come into the family with fear and doubt and anxiety. You can't embrace outside of you which you have expelled and excluded inside of you. How are we ever going to be whole as a group of churches if we can't first be whole internally? That's the way it works. And so what begins to happen to us is we because we're ashamed of it, we don't want to be ashamed of it, but then it happens eventually and it begins to interfere with others. So why do you think it is the church has not been able to deal with mental illness? Because the church doesn't want to acknowledge mental illness inside of itself. Why do you think the church has not been able to deal with the LGBT community or abortion? Because the church can't acknowledge those pains within the sense of that it caused the issue in the first place. That it caused issues inside of ourselves and we might have to stand up for our own conscience and sin and say, So, what happens? I I love this quote. One of the great pastors that I had, he said, Part of maturity is learning to listen to the voice of fear, doubt, and pain within yourself and exchange it for passion. Part of maturity is learning to hear the voice of fear, doubt, and pain within you and exchange it for Listen to it and recognize it because it has a valuable role to play, but you will not let it paralyze you. You own it before you can stand it. You cannot stand pain that you do not own. I love this quote. Elizabeth Gilbert, the writer of uh, Can't Hold Love, anybody ever read that book? Yeah, great, great, great book. Fear, you can ride in the back seat, but you can't drive and you can't keep the wheel. That's the way it's supposed to work. Fear is going to say, car, listen, keep wheeling about it. To leave it behind you would be to leave part of yourself. But it's not going to drive and it can't keep the wheel. That's the idea. That's what he's trying to communicate here is that it has a valuable role to play. It's supposed to be there. You're going to hear it, but you're not going to give it power. You have to hear it to be able to own it so that you can transcend it, but you don't have to let it have power over you. But as soon as you refuse to acknowledge its presence, it then has power over you, doesn't it? As soon as you don't acknowledge its presence and you cut that element of who you are off and don't allow it to be at the table with you, it now has power over you because it has divided and separated you from being whole. You become a section of yourself. So the idea that John is trying to bring, the great movement of the heart of John's gospel was the emptying of the old so that life could come. It was the embrace of gift and weaknesses. That's John's gospel. So the heart of it is the joining of our gifts and our weaknesses with one another, recognizing that our mutual desire to build this temple, or as Peter calls it, this spiritual house, is made up of you living stones. This causes it to be made up of, as Jerry mentioned this morning, a deeper value for diversity. Diversity in class, diversity in uh, background, diversity in ethnicity, diversity in all ways and things. But as soon as we choose to ignore the diversity within ourselves, we cannot embrace the diversity inside of others. And what begins to happen is 
that, that John uses this incredible concept because within the concept that you embrace your weakness and your gifts, your fear and your love, in that tension is where the radiance of life breaks through. And what John says is can be honest and say they don't understand their story and have a hard time talking about it, whatever. People can be very different from one another. How is it that that condition works? Because light shows where there's tension and darkness and confusion. And I'm not talking to anybody right now. I'm talking to everybody because that's just the reality. This is the teaching of John from Ephesus. At the time of John's gospel, the church was falling back into segregation and splitting. And, and by the way, we just talked about the spirit of segregation and splitting in the church in this passage. But the church in Ephesus was falling back into segregation, and that was a teaching practice. This was primarily based on religious obedience. So what began to happen was in the church in Ephesus, there was a confusion. So if you had Jewish teachers, you were one type of believer. If you followed a Jewish ritual, say you were a little bitter, etc., etc., etc. So Paul began to, uh, uh, Paul started this beautiful thing that they began doing more than out of guilt. And this old tradition causes them to move backwards. John is actually trying to show us a bigger vision of the kingdom. Belonging with in creation is Christ. So what he
see what God is doing here? When John is starting this prologue, he's recognizing that he has to widen out the book of Genesis. Let me say that again, because if you don't understand this, you won't understand the book of John. John's intent is to widen the creation story. So he starts where Genesis starts, which is in the beginning. But he's trying to widen it because the scope that we understood it is too small. So he starts with in the beginning. And then he says, in the beginning, these people weren't very receptive to the first epiphany, to the full picture. In the beginning was the word, and the word was everything, and all things came to be through it. And interestingly enough, the word word, how many of you know that in Hebrew and Greek, like the word word is your logos? Like in Hebrew? So I was always taught when I was in Hebraic uh, science and grad classes that you, I always taught that the word logos was the spoken word of God, and the word rhema was, um, was the fresh word of God. So the Bible was the logos, right? It was the, it was the, the written word of God, and the rhema was the spoken word of God. God was speaking to everybody, right? That's what logos means. Well, that's true, but it's about this much of it. It's just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what God is doing. Interestingly enough, if you look at the term logos, first of all, it can't mean that the Bible was the logos. The written word can't be the logos. That's just as far as it goes. And if you think that's crazy, because was this from the beginning? So how could the logos be the written word of God if this wasn't in the beginning and it says clearly in the written word of God that the logos was from the beginning? Furthermore, not only did we have 6,000 years of humanity and 13.8 billion years of creation after uh, that you get the Bible, the church existed for 1,500 years without the Bible. So that's a very short beginning. In the beginning was the word can't mean this because it didn't just the church of ours existed for 1500 years without it. So how could it be the Bible? Because that can't even be the Bible. It can mean basically. It's interesting to me because let me just say this. You do realize that the church has existed for three times as long without the Bible as we have with it. Post Jesus. The Christian church has existed for three times as long without the Bible as we have with it. So, the Logos cannot be the written word of God. The Logos is actually a word that's much, much, much bigger than that. It actually means wholeness, allness, or everything. That's what the definition of Logos is. Everything. In the beginning was the everything. The allness. If you take it to the uh, through the Septuagint um, and the Aramaic of it, it's in the beginning was the unstoppable eternal Genesis story, now you can say John is actually telling a different story. Because in the Genesis story, God spoke, but actually the way that that conversation is completely different from that in Genesis. Two epiphanies. John stays in Jerusalem for every one of them. Every time there are epiphanies, every time there is Jesus, it was always in and always in Jerusalem. That's how it starts. That's a lot bigger than the book, even the first book. So what he's saying is, in the beginning is this breathing. John is actually saying, and I, I hate to say this, but it's a reality. John is actually saying we need a new Genesis. Our Genesis story is too small. Our Genesis story is not like other stories. Our Genesis story is like Jesus and everybody else in that story. And he's saying we need a new Genesis story. This Genesis story says, if it's alive, it's fresh. So he has to start with the point that God did not do it by his own thought. And God did not create all living things by his creation. So literally, 
the universe is God's thoughts. That's really the point. Like, I, I just said that over and over again, and that's the point. The universe is God's thoughts. If it's in the universe, it's in God's thoughts. And interestingly enough, the universe is expanding of a rate of a thousand times the fastest ever seen every minute. When I was in school, they said that for every one person, there were six stars. Now they actually understood that for every one person on the earth, there's six galaxies. Do you hear it? Because it's ever expanding and it's ever growing and it's ever developing. We live in a God-breathed universe that God has made in eternity. And that's why we never get sad with only one thing. And if our gospel ever stops getting bigger and more beautiful and more inclusive, we are actually working against the flow of the one eternal God. If our gospel ever gets smaller and exclusive, we begin to work against the nature of the gospel. And then it can't and it only expands. It only grows. It only flows. Jesus Christ, Yahweh, is going to be awaiting for that gospel. He's going to be worried about expanding. He is expecting us to not be focused on Jesus but to reach out. Don't focus on your ability to get the light of truth of a follower like me that have been given to you in Christ. God has been focusing us on the light that is in all things. Christ is all. That's what the world says. But Christ soaked the universe. He soaked the universe in Christ. You do not shine brighter when you follow the rules and perform well. You do not shine brighter when you squash the doubts and the fears that we all have. You shine brightest when you surrender to the radiance that is already getting to the whole thing. When you pour yourself out just to this love that gave love enough to you for you to join with it. Please hear me, folks. You do not shine brighter. You, do, you are not more accepted. You are not more spiritual. You are not more loving or, or any other thing when you perform well or follow the rules. You do not shine brighter when you squash the doubts and the fears that everyone has. You shine brightest when you surrender to the radiance that has already been baked into your heart. You shine brightest when you trust and surrender, not when you perform and are perfect. He doesn't need your hatred. He needs your trust. said in closing that the lamp sheds its oil of light through the breadth of a man of character in order to open more space between the awareness of God's presence and our weakness. Amen. What did I just say about oil? I don't care if they worship him for a moment or not. We need to be 
Amen. All right. Love everybody. This has been our first Thursday night. We will be at uh, the bar. Um, meet. We'll be meeting at Rockers. Maybe we'll just walk you down there. We'll meet a little bit. We'll have some great food. It'll be really good eating. Um, so you're welcome to eat there as well. Um, if you prefer walking, you can come down there. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.